this podcast contains coarse language, dark humor, descriptions of violence, and controversial opinions. Listener discretion is advised. Hey you. Yeah you. Consumer of last meals. Have you ventured over to Rumble yet? You can see my homeless crackhead aesthetic live if you come hang out on Friday nights. If you could do me a favor and drop a like, or a rating, or a review, wherever you found me, that would be lovely. I'm just a humble night shift zombie that can't afford to advertise, so word of mouth and reviews would help me out immensely. Much love to all of you, and I hope you enjoy this one. Montana is the gateway to America's hat. If memory serves me correctly, it has the longest shared border with Canada. There's a reservation up there as well. It's famous for wildlife and other natural attractions, including a fucking volcano. I've got family up in Montana somewhere, not that I really talk to any family aside from Arizona grandma, but whatever. This vast expanse of forests and fucking volcanoes is a popular tourist destination due in part to Yellowstone National Park. I've actually never been there. I've never been a lot of places. I've only heard good things about Yellowstone. As far as the death penalty goes, Montana is pretty much what you'd expect. They're a red state, and their capital punishment policy reflects that. A handful of attempts to abolish the death penalty have been made in recent years, but they never pass. Hanging was the primary method of execution until 1995. Can you fucking believe that? They also had the option of the gas chamber, but it was never used. Lethal injection came along in 95 and became the only execution method in the state. A total of 71 people were put to death here between 1863 and 1943. Since capital punishment was reinstated in the 70s, Montana has only executed three people. Must be something in the mountains because Idaho and Utah are very similar in this way. We have the death penalty, and we hand it out to people, but no one actually gets executed. What a fucking disaster. For today's trip, you should probably bring a hunting rifle, a tent, and some hiking boots that are fucking volcano-proof. We're heading up to the treasure state. Historical crimes are often difficult to research due to the fact that the records of them have been lost to time. It's crazy to think that 1943 was 80 years ago. Some would consider that ancient history. The first crime I'm going to bring you today is a rare example of how fast the judicial process used to be. Our perpetrator was caught, convicted, and executed in just three months. Not much is known about the early life of Philip Coleman Jr., aside from what he told the sheriffs during his interrogation. He was born in 1919 in East St. Louis, Illinois, and claimed to have many half-siblings scattered around Arkansas and Illinois. When Coleman was young, his mother remarried, and this stepfather would be the reason the man left home at the age of nine. He ran off to Pittsburgh, where he was arrested for stealing bread. This was the first of many attempts to run away. Coleman's mother was eventually murdered, and her body was burned to ash. When asked for information about this, Coleman told the police that a white man had done it. 
This man was never charged, and Coleman claimed that it was because the man was white and his mother was black. This is during an era when he might actually be correct. But who knows? From what I gather, he likes to spin stories. He also told the police that he only finished one year of high school. Coleman did what he could to have a normal life, it seems. Sometime as a young adult, he moved to Franklin, Washington, and shacked up with a Native American woman who was originally from Montana. They got married and had a couple of kids before Coleman ghosted them without reason. The young man was later arrested for a handful of burglaries in Washington and spent a total of 20 months behind bars for these crimes. When he got out, he worked different odd jobs to make ends meet and traveled around the country a bit before winding up in Montana. On July 24, 1943, a foreman for the Northern Pacific Railway offered Coleman a job. This man was 48-year-old Carl Pearson. He lived in the town of Lothrop, Montana. Coleman worked alongside 39-year-old Lewis Brown, who was an ex-convict from Kansas. The 40s really was a hell of a time to be alive, wasn't it? After they finished for the day, the men went out to a bar in Alberton and played dice together. As they were leaving for the night, Coleman told Lewis that he planned on robbing Pearson as he'd seen $200 in his house while he was there working. Now I know that doesn't seem like anything, we're living in Biden's America where $200 can't even cover your electric bill for the month, but this is 1943. Lewis Brown wasn't interested in Coleman's shenanigans, though. Because of this, Coleman pulled a knife and cut his hand before threatening to kill him if he didn't comply. As they arrived back to the home of Carl Pearson, Coleman remarked to him that Lewis was sick and needed some aspirin. Carl went to get some and was met by an axe-wielding psychopath when he returned. Coleman bludgeoned him to death with the blunt end of the axe. But they weren't done yet. Coleman dragged his accomplice to the bedroom where Carl's 30-year-old wife, Rosalind, was laying down. She was threatened and forced to reveal where the money was hidden. After this, Coleman took out a knife, probably the same one with Lewis's blood still on it, and stabbed Rosalind to death. He ordered Lewis to grab the bags and meet him at the front door, but this wasn't what happened. Lewis was scared of Coleman, who wouldn't be. So he hid behind some rocks outside and waited for the man to leave. After several minutes of searching for Lewis and whistling at him, because he's a dog, I guess, Coleman drove off in Carl Pearson's car. Lewis waited a few extra minutes before leaving the safety of the rocks and heading toward Missoula. Crimes of this nature are obviously horrible, regardless of how they're discovered, but it's especially heinous when it's a family member who stumbles upon the bodies. The Pearson's seven-year-old son, Richard, would find their bodies shortly after the murders occurred. He was a smart kid, and immediately ran to tell a neighbor that his father was lying out in the yard. The neighbor called the police, and they issued arrest warrants for Lewis Brown and Philip Coleman. The next day, the stolen car was found in Drummond, but Coleman had abandoned it and was nowhere to be found. Lewis was arrested at a hotel in Missoula and identified by his social security card. They questioned him, but he denied having any involvement in the murders. For three days, police in Montana, Idaho, and North Dakota searched for Coleman. Many men were arrested on the grounds that they might be the fugitive. Think about that for a second. This was back in a time without computers, without detailed ID photos. 
Any black man walking down the street was a target simply because there was a black man on the run for murder. All of the men that were arrested were able to provide solid alibis and were released without charge. This nationwide manhunt was a waste, though. Coleman had been hiding in a train car in Drummond, Montana. He was found on July 28th. By this point, Lewis had a change of heart and wanted to confess to what he and Coleman had done. You'd think that a man who tried so hard to get away with murder would deny everything, right? Well, I wasn't lying when I called Coleman a psychopath. He readily admitted to killing Rosalind and said that he intended to plead guilty to her murder as soon as possible. In a likely attempt to get a lesser sentence, he initially denied killing Carl. Apparently, this was seen as Coleman trying to put off the guilty plea for this crime until a later date and get a lesser sentence. I'm not sure how that works, but whatever. Newspapers at the time described Coleman as cocky and boastful, but also said that he was well-spoken and had a pretty good understanding of how the court procedure worked. The murders of Carl and Rosalind Pearson weren't the only things these men were accused of. During a later investigation, police came to suspect the pair of multiple thefts and an additional murder. Lewis amended his statement on July 31st, saying that he hadn't actually seen Coleman kill Rosalind, but he'd assumed that was the case as Coleman's clothes were bloody when he left the house. Police informed him that he'd still be charged with the murder and asked why he decided to change his statement. He was afraid that he'd be lynched in jail if he was honest. This is the 40s, so maybe. The real kicker with this case is how differently the two accused men acted. Coleman was cheerful and even smiled in his press photo. Lewis was losing his fucking mind and showed obvious signs of mental distress. Coleman pled guilty to Rosalind's murder on August 2nd and blamed Lewis entirely for Carl's murder. This didn't work out for him in the end, though. He was convicted on all counts and sentenced to death. When asked if he had anything to say, his response was, to hell with it, followed by a laugh. Lewis Brown was found guilty of the murder of Carl Pearson and sentenced to life in prison. From the bit of research I've done, I've come to the conclusion that he didn't actually want to be there. He didn't want to participate. He was threatened and he was scared of the man who was actually guilty. If he wasn't, then why would he give up his cut of the loot and hide in the rocks instead of leaving with Coleman? The 1940s were a hell of a time. Philip Coleman Jr. was executed by hanging on September 10th, 1943. His case was one of the fastest capital cases in the state of Montana. From the time of the murder until he hung from that noose, only 47 days had passed. After the execution, a letter was discovered where Coleman claimed responsibility for more than 20 other murders and an assault in Washington. Another man named Jack Williams was serving a life sentence for that assault. Details were only given for eight of the murders, so no one really knows if they actually happened. Coleman, like many other condemned men, found God in prison. He was baptized a Catholic before his execution. His exact last words are unavailable, but it was something along the lines of being sorry for what he'd done and that he knew he'd be facing God for a final judgment. Typical last words. His last meal was a plate of fried oysters. I know, I'm surprised too. I actually found the last meal for this ancient case. 
I'm also shocked that they could whip up fried oysters in the 40s, especially in Montana. That seems like a 2023 California food to me, but what the hell do I know? Teach men not to rape. Remember when that feminazi garbage was going around? As if somehow society doesn't already drill it into our heads that violence against others is wrong? That statement has always pissed me off. It could be countered with teach women not to lie. But that's misogynistic, right? Teach fat people not to eat. Teach drug addicts not to use. You can't judge an entire group based on the actions of one. But some people just can't be helped. Some people are fucked up. It's just the way it is. Lana Harding was a 23-year-old school teacher in Pondera County, Montana. This is a very rural part of northeastern Montana. Teaching was probably her passion. It kind of has to be to make that your profession in a place like this. I imagine she loved her job and was a very kind person. She lived at the Pioneer School where she also worked. That's how fucking rural this place is. On January 22nd, 1974, she failed to show up for work. When they checked her bed, it was found to be disheveled. The sheriff was called and officers were dispatched to the remote location. Fun fact, probably gonna dox myself a little bit. My mom's uncle was a sheriff in Montana. Not gonna say which county, but yeah. When I say I hate cops, this guy is the exception. He's a good man and a fine sheriff. And I'm not just saying that because we're technically related. He is a genuinely good guy. Small town cops often are. One of Lana's shoes was found just outside the school. There were also drag marks leading from the school to a nearby road, as well as blood near the end of that trail. This was later determined to be the same type as Lana's blood. In addition to that, Lana's watch was lying near this blood. Seems pretty obvious to me that she met with foul play. Police probably thought so too. A man named Duncan McKenzie was working at the K&K Wholesale Seed Company around the time Lana disappeared. He'd been seen on his drive home from work that day. The man lived just three miles from the Pioneer School. McKenzie had recently purchased a black Dodge pickup truck that everyone in town recognized. It had belonged to another local man for many years. This truck was spotted a mile away from the school at about 7pm on January 21st. About an hour later, Mackenzie knocked on the door of the Pearson farmhouse, which was located directly across the street from the school. He asked the residents to help him start his truck. While here, he called his wife and told her he was coming home. After getting the truck started, Don Pearson watched as Mackenzie drove off in the opposite direction of his house. Coincidentally, it was later found that his truck was parked at the same spot where the drag marks ended and Lana's blood was found. Lana's body was found not long after she was murdered, draped across the tongue of a grain drill. I didn't know what that was either, so I googled it, saved you some time. It is not exactly what it sounds like. Basically, a grain drill is a big-ass machine that plants seeds at a controlled depth and in specific amounts. Farmers use them, obviously. They look like big tractors with a row of wheels on the back. When she was found, Lana was wearing only a shirt, a sweater, and a bra. A coil of wire was found tangled in her hair. She had been severely beaten and had a rope tied around her neck. 
Her cause of death was a very serious blow to the head that had split open the right side. Evidence of strangulation was very clear, but that wasn't what had killed her. Lana suffered tremendously. She endured a prolonged beating, a rape, and being strangled before having the pressure on her neck released to prevent her from dying this way. Not far from Lana's body, police found a pair of bloody work gloves, a pair of overshoes, whatever those are, with brain matter and blood on them, and Lana's purse. They had a suspect pretty quickly. Duncan McKenzie was charged with assault and a search warrant was issued. When his truck was searched, blood was found all over the back of it. In addition to this, they recovered a handful of other items with blood matching Lana's on them, and a coil of wire that matched what had been found in her hair. One of the things they found in the truck was an exhaust manifold, covered in blood and brain matter. This was likely what had been used to beat Lana to death. This case is full of all kinds of evidence that points clearly to Mackenzie being the killer. He made half-assed attempts to conceal what he'd done by spray-painting parts of his truck, but it didn't matter. All the pieces were there. He was convicted of aggravated kidnapping and deliberate homicide by means of torture. Like most cowardly bastards do, Mackenzie appealed, many times, pulling every rabbit out of his hat that he could think of, but he was obviously guilty. Lana's brain matter was all over his shoes, all over his truck. He wasn't getting away with this. Duncan Peter Mackenzie Jr. was executed by lethal injection on May 10, 1995. He was the first person in Montana to be put down since lethal injection became the primary method, and the first one to die for his crimes since the death penalty was reinstated. If you ask me, he deserved it. He took a young woman away from her family, a caring teacher away from her students. For what? To satisfy his sexual needs. What a fucking disgrace. One of Mackenzie's last requests was to have music playing during his execution. I'd probably ask for that too, honestly. It was granted. He listened to a Marty Robbins album as the drugs were pushed through his body. Mackenzie didn't have any last words. His last meal was a tenderloin steak, a tossed salad, french fries, orange sherbet, and milk. Montana has only executed three people since the 90s. According to something I read about Duncan McKenzie, he was the only one of the three to be put to death involuntarily, which means the other two, both convicted of murder during the course of a robbery, met their maker without a fight. Suicide by state? Probably not. That's a whole different animal, and I intend to do an episode about it eventually. One topic at a time, my dudes. People who commit robberies are often motivated by drug use. Shit's expensive, especially when you have a habit and are too fucked up to work an actual job. I've danced with addiction before, never anything bad enough to make me steal from people. I share an unpopular opinion with the governments of the Middle East. Thieves should have their hands chopped off. It's not fair to hardworking people to have their money or belongings taken by someone who can't be bothered to be a productive member of society. I'm also pro-shooting intruders, even if they don't threaten you, and yes, my property is worth more than the life of someone who thinks they're entitled to it. 
I can't say for sure if drugs were the motive behind David Dawson's crimes, but I've looked into enough robberies to make an educated guess. In mid-April of 1986, the Rodstein family were in the process of moving from Montana to Atlanta, Georgia. David was the man of the house and had worked as the director of engineering for a company in Billings. He'd taken a new job down in Georgia. This move was the reason the family found themselves at the airport Metra Inn on April 18, 1986. David's wife Monica worked as a secretary for the Billings School District and had served as a union rep for other clerical employees in the district. David and Monica had a 15-year-old daughter named Amy and an 11-year-old son named Andrew. They were a typical Montana family building a life for themselves. Friends described them as humorous and kind, always positive, the kind of people you'd want to live next door to. Monica and Amy were packing up the car to leave the hotel on April 18th when they noticed a man checking into the room next to them. He had checked in under the name John Monroe, but this was an alias. As Amy returned to the room from the car, this man showed her a gun that he was carrying in a duffel bag and forced his way into the Rodstein's hotel room. He told the family, Calm down, I need your money. We are going to the next room. He then moved everyone into the room that he had checked into, without pointing the gun at anyone. I guess the threat of it was enough. After everyone was in this new room, the man known as John Monroe cranked the TV volume and put the Do Not Disturb sign on the door. That second part was a waste, they never fucking listen. I've had cleaning staff bust into my hotel rooms and see some shit I know they weren't prepared for. But this podcast ain't about crazy shit I've done in my life. It's about people getting the death penalty. Monroe put the gun down on one of the beds and ordered the family to lay face down on the floor. David was bound and gagged first, and Monica was next in line. She begged this stranger to take whatever possessions he wanted from them, but to leave her family alone. He didn't listen. Monica was restrained and also gagged, followed by 11-year-old Andrew. Amy was taken back to the room she'd previously been staying in, and forced to help her captor collect the family's belongings. Once they were back in the room, Amy was also bound and gagged. Amy witnessed Monroe inject her father with something. He told David that it was just something to make him go to sleep, and that after everyone was asleep, he'd leave, and that would be the end of it. Maids would find the family, and everyone would be okay. After David and Monica were both injected with this mystery substance, Amy was told to face the wall so she couldn't see what was about to happen. Although she was instructed not to look, she noticed her mother kicking at Monroe. He told Monica to calm down and that everything would be fine. But people don't get the death penalty for robbery, at least not anymore. Monroe strangled David and Monica to death with a telephone cord. Later on, the assailant began repacking everything into suitcases. Amy noticed her parents taped up under a blanket and asked Monroe if he'd checked on them. This cruel son of a bitch told her that they were fine. Andrew was later made to drink something their captor had mixed in water. The boy appeared to fall asleep. Monroe gave the same thing to Amy, but she poured it out when he wasn't looking. This wasn't a typical robbery. He didn't just tie everyone up, grab the valuables, and leave. He held Amy captive for two days, often taking her with him as he went on errands. He made a few phone calls and went to several houses where he spoke with other people. This dude even had the balls to drive to his own apartment 
and leave Amy in the car unrestrained. Twice. The fear she felt must have been insane because it kept her from running off. She was a smart kid. During one of these trips, she had the sense to get some papers out of the glove box and copy down Monroe's information. It was then that she learned her captor's real name, David Thomas Dawson. When asked why she did this, she said, I guess to leave something behind in case I didn't make it. On April 20th, Dawson put Amy in the bathroom with a blanket, a pillow, and her dog Tigger. He told her he needed to check on something outside the room and shut the door, leaving her in there alone. Amy was terrified. She thought next time the door opened, it would be Dawson coming back to kill her. But it wasn't. It was a police officer. As it turns out, there were people waiting for the Rodsteins to arrive in Georgia. When they didn't, police were called, and a search began. Their cars were located at the airport Metra Inn, and the cops started searching all the rooms. In the room that had been checked out by John Monroe, they found three bodies and one terrified teenager who was thankfully physically unharmed. Dawson was arrested on the spot. I guess they caught up to him before he could make off with his loot. This was a cut-and-dry case of a man who wanted to commit a robbery and killed three people in the process. He wasn't a smart criminal, though. He left a witness alive and chose to stay at the scene of the crime. Not saying his stupidity was a bad thing, but, uh... Well, you know how the story ends already. David Thomas Dawson was executed by lethal injection on August 11th, 2006. He is the most recent execution in Montana up to this date. Civil liberties groups argued against his execution, as they often do, but this was pointless. Dawson himself stated in 2004 that he wanted to be executed. Maybe he was remorseful, or maybe he was just tired of prison. He told a district court judge, I have no hopes, no dreams. All I have is 20 years preparing to be executed. Enough is enough. There has to be an end. I've seen articles about prisoners claiming that prison is worse than execution. I've never been, so I can't really speak to that. But I imagine that waiting around for the state to kill you is pretty fucking torturous. His execution went smoothly and only took about five minutes. When asked if he had any last words, Dawson said no. His last meal was two double cheeseburgers, two large portions of fries, half a gallon of vanilla fudge ice cream, and two bottles of Dr. Pepper. Amy went on to get married and move to California. She didn't attend the execution, but sent a written statement to be read afterward. In it, she says that she's done her best to move forward and live a happy life. She said that she wanted to honor her family rather than dwell on Dawson's execution. I hope she's still out there living her best life. Surviving something like this can't be easy. There are currently two inmates sitting on death row in Montana. Both have been there for more than 30 years. Their stories are both interesting in their own weird ways, so I've decided to give you the short versions of both. Fuck it, right? You know, I thought Montana would be like so many other states with a moratorium on capital punishment, still handing it out even though they don't use it, but apparently not. This first condemned guy I'm gonna tell you about, boy does he have a lot going on. 
Ronald Smith was born in Wetaskiwin, Alberta, in the land of maple leaves and modern-day communism. Probably fucked up that town name, but I don't care. Canada needs to find better names for things. On August 3rd, 1982, Smith and two other men left Canada and headed down into Montana, leaving one rural emptiness for another. At a bar in East Glacier, Montana, the men drank some beer with two other bar patrons who would later be identified as Harvey Madman and Thomas Running Rabbit. In case the names didn't give it away, these men were of indigenous descent. While at the bar, Smith had been telling one of his friends that he wanted to steal a car and kill any witnesses to the theft. What I'm wondering is, how the fuck did you get from Alberta to Montana without a car? That ain't walking distance. The closest Canadian border town is an hour's drive. And if they had a car, why in God's name would they steal another one? After Smith and his two friends left the bar, they hitchhiked along Highway 2, just west of Flathead County. Their indigenous acquaintances noticed them and decided to pick them up. The group drove for about 20 minutes before pulling over for a nice side-of-the-highway pee break. When Harvey and Thomas got back in the car, Smith pulled out a bolt-action 22 rifle, which he'd illegally brought into the U.S. Smith's friend, Rodney Monroe, threatened the men with a knife. At some point, the Canadians dragged the two cousins out of the car and led them into the nearby woods. Smith shot Harvey Madman in the back of the head at point-blank range. Monroe decided to stab Thomas Running Rabbit, and Smith later came over to shoot him in the temple to make sure he was dead. Over a fucking car. You know, I've heard that Alberta is the Florida of Canada, but this, this proves it. The three Maple Leaf people took off in the victim's car and made their way to California. Andre Fontaine and Rodney Monroe would later be arrested for armed robbery while here. Smith was found and arrested in Wyoming. Ronald Allen Smith pled guilty to two counts of aggravated kidnapping and two counts of deliberate homicide and was sentenced to death in March of 1983. If you've been a fan since the beginning, you'll know that foreign governments don't take too kindly to the U.S. executing their citizens. Canada's no different. They fought hard to get clemency for Smith based on humanitarian grounds, but as of 2007, they seem to have given up. Smith tried to argue that his heavy use of LSD leading up to the day of the murders should have been a mitigating factor, but it didn't do him any good. Contrary to popular belief, acid really doesn't fuck you up long term, unless you have some kind of underlying mental issue. Trust me, I know. Smith still sits on death row to this day. He'll probably get taken out by old age before the state settles on an updated lethal injection protocol. The other guy currently sitting on death row in the fucking volcano state is one of those that just doesn't learn, apparently. Life in prison is torturous enough, death penalty opponents like to claim, but some people don't let life behind bars get in the way of their violent urges. William Gullahone sure didn't. I feel like he's a loser and a native. That last name is a weird one. This man was serving 130 years in Montana State Prison for murdering a woman in 1985. There aren't a lot of details surrounding this crime. His appeal for this was denied. If you ask me, this one should have gotten him the death penalty. Though I can't find much about it, I have to assume he put this poor woman through hell. He is a very violent man. 
What he did during his time in prison is a shining example of that. On the morning of September 22, 1991, Gullahone and eight other inmates managed to take control of the maximum security unit of the Montana State Prison. Five hours later, the correctional officers would find that five inmates in protective custody had died as a result of the riot. Vigilante justice? Maybe. It was a ballsy move, that's for sure. Gullahone and his accomplices had broken through the wire fences that separated the exercise yards and gained access to the maximum security building. From here, they made their way into the control cages and opened up all the doors in the unit. This gave them full access to everyone. After threatening a group of officers who had barricaded themselves in a shower facility, the men got hold of the keys to the remaining locked sections of the building. An officer overheard one of the prisoners say that they were going to get the protective custody inmates on D-Block. Gullahone was charged with two counts of kidnapping, one count of burglary, and five counts of deliberate homicide for his role in the riots. His sentence was what you'd expect. 40 years for the kidnapping and burglary charges, plus five consecutive life terms. You were expecting a death sentence, right? You'd think that the state of Montana would have figured out by this point that Gullahone was a dangerous man and prison wouldn't keep him in check. That's the thing. He already had a death sentence. This riot occurred while he was on death row. On September 2nd, 1990, the body of an inmate named Gerald Pileggi was found in an exercise yard. A handful of witnesses had seen Gullahone and a man named Douglas Turner beat Gerald with baseball bats. The autopsy showed that he died from massive head injuries, including a blow to the top of his head that had caved in his skull. He was also hit in the side of the face with such force that his forehead collapsed, his brain was torn, and one of his eyes ruptured. You tell me why you think keeping Gullahone alive is a good idea. Douglas Turner executed himself by hanging on July 8, 2003. He'd been serving time in prison for shooting three people to death. The circumstances of this, combined with his eventual suicide, lead me to believe that he had some serious underlying issues. He was just 16 when this crime was committed. Turner had never met his neighbors, so it was a bit of a shock when he came home on the night of November 19, 1987, and retrieved his rifle from his house before going next door and shooting his neighbors. Three of them were killed before the gun misfired and Turner was forced to use it to bludgeon the children who were inside the house. In the end, he got what he deserved. The state gave him life in prison, but he wanted a death sentence. William J. Gullahone is still sitting on death row in Montana. He's been there for more than 30 years at this point, soaking up taxpayer money and trying to appeal his sentences. In December of 1993, he claimed that the court erred by not dismissing his burglary and deliberate homicide charges. In case you forgot, you can still be considered guilty of a murder, even if you only participated in whatever other felony was going on at the time. Here's an idea. Maybe stop participating in violent acts if you don't want to be charged? Montana is full of wildlife, beautiful landscapes, fucking volcanoes, 
And homicidal maniacs. Every recent case I've found up there ends in someone being shot. It's often said that places like Finland have a higher suicide rate because of the climate and the near-constant darkness. Could the same be said for Montana? Do fucking volcanoes make people want to murder? There's a sword and scale about a guy named Paul DeWise who committed an absolutely disgusting act. He shot his ex-wife to death and severely injured her roommate. This was after stalking her and other abusive behavior. Domestic violence is no joke. DeWise committed his crime in the great state of Montana. There must be something in the water. On December 10th, 2023, a man by the name of Matthew Vitek showed up to a house in Lake County with a gun. He was heard on a surveillance video saying, you're all going to die, before he shot the three people who were on the property. Tammy Jordan was killed in this attack. She was Vitek's ex-girlfriend. Two other people who lived at the property were shot while trying to help Tammy, but ultimately survived. The son of these victims told a reporter that Vitek had been involved in other domestic issues with Tammy before the shooting occurred. Are we really surprised? Abusers don't change. When police arrived on the scene, Vitek threw down his gun and gave himself up without a fight. Matthew Thomas Vitek is being held in Lake County and has been charged with one count of murder and two counts of attempted murder. He'll more than likely get life in prison. This case made me sad. Such a senseless crime. If you're in an abusive relationship, please reach out and get some help. The phone number for the National Domestic Violence Hotline is 800-799-7233. They're available 24-7 and can provide you with resources to get away from your abuser. Vitek took an innocent life and severely injured two others simply because he wanted control over Tammy. Like I said a minute ago, Abusers don't change. That's it for Montana. Maybe one of these days I'll venture up there and check out Yellowstone. I'll make sure to stay armed though, because apparently you have to if you want to survive up there. Gotta make sure I can shoot at the fucking volcano if it tries to attack me. If you enjoyed this episode, carve a review into a tree. Like, really dig in there so people can read it from a distance. Share my shit all over the internet. I livestream on Rumble on Friday nights, unless I'm chained to a desk at work. You can get me on Instagram and Twitter, at LastMealPod. I don't know if you guys can tell, but I got my new mic finally, and I feel pretty fucking professional. It's been nice. I'll be back next week with an episode about the corn state. The corn and Kool-Aid state. That's a fucking thing. Cursed is the man who dies, but the evil done by him survives. See you next time.